Yeehaw, hello, howdy. Thank you all for joining us on the Canon Stats Podcast. This was the weekly, and we'll hopefully get back to the weekly Arsenal Analytics Podcast. I am Scott Willis, and always I am joined by my co-host Adam Vogie. Adam, I know you were sick recently, so hopefully you are back to full strength, back to full fitness, and ready to dig into the gloominess that is Arsenal at the moment. Um, how are you feeling? Doing good? Uh, yeah. Like like Thomas Party, I'm always it's always a question whether I'm actually fully fit, but you know, I'm better than I was, so we've got that in common, I guess. And of I, course, I, I, you know, just so much beautiful Arsenal discussion in the <laughs> world right now. It's wonderful. It, it, it is the absolutely peak Arsenal discussion right now. And, and I'm kind of like torn between like seeing both sides. Like I, I totally understand the frustration with this. I know we were talking before we, we hit record and like you go from Christmas where Arsenal aren't necessarily like the favorite, but they are the team with like probably at least in my mind, like the highest odds of winning the title at that point. Like, but there, there's three teams that are there for like, you know, right there at the cusp of things. And then two major big losses, both I think with different ways that they happened um, and really kind yeah. of different ways that you pull out of them. And then, you know, you go from being at the top of the pile to now we're third of the pile and it really feels like it's a, a real gut punch of the last couple of days. And I, I can understand like why that frustration is absolutely there right now. Yeah. I, I it's it, it, I think I've seen it mentioned a few times, so I don't, I don't know that I'm really breaking any like uh, analytical news here, but it, it was just interesting to go from, I almost feel like heading into West Ham, for example, the, the focus among Arsenal fans was so much off of Manchester city that it was almost like, it was almost like an additional shock to some people when they looked at the table in their city where like, Oh God, if city, if city wins, they're going to be ahead of us again. So it's been, it, it was definitely a, like a roller coaster kind of a ride. And, and like you said, just two, two like very different journeys to the same result in mm-hmm. that week, like losing to West Ham in a game where, you know, I, yes, like you, people have, have loved to argue this, Yes, you put you put a game state effect on because they scored right away, and Arsenal spent the rest of the second or the rest of the first half trying to equalize unsuccessfully. Um, so absolutely, like did that affect the like the underlying numbers, so to speak? Yes, it it definitely did. But I mean, that was even even if you sort of tweak for that, I think that was just like really really one sided. I think I uh, can't remember which reporter it was, but. It, I think it became like the biggest uh, non-penalty XG margin game in Opta's model, maybe, that uh, had been a loss, which is super <laughs> depressing. And it's like 90 plus percent of the time the the team on that side of things was pulling out a win. Uh, so and then you go to and then you go to Fulham and I'm just like, it just it just was a complete stinker. Like everybody, I think almost everybody played badly. They looked, you know, they looked dead on the pitch. They looked kind of sleepwalking through the game and nothing was working and just it couldn't just couldn't get any, like, rhythm going. You know, what reason you want to put on that, I think, is everybody's own little pet cause right now. But, uh, yeah, it's just a week to forget, feels like. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think I had that one uh, 
2.6 on the the non-shot XG. So a very solid number in line with basically the actual XG. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that coming out of West Ham that I think I was the most frustrated with is people I felt like giving too much credit to David Moyes and West Ham, like because mm-hmm. even even if you say that, yeah, like they defended well, and there were certain situations that I think they did make a lot of really good like last ditch defending doing those kinds of things like there's no way David Moyes lined up with the idea of uh we're gonna let them get 77 touches in our box we're gonna let them take 30 shots and like this is our plan and this is going to lead for us winning like that's that's no way that this was the plan for them I think they got incredibly lucky um to be able to do that um, I think Arsenal, you know, didn't this wasn't this wasn't Arsenal at their best, but this was Arsenal far from their worst. And I think the other thing too is I think people have been heavily discounting the number of open opportunities they had. Like I went through like all of them, and I think that there was like maybe like six or so that I thought were really good scoring chances, and then like two or three that were like, yeah, I've seen Arsenal like score there, and like you kind of have like decent expectations of things happening like that's a lot of good chances yeah like yes there was some some bad shots that happened and like that's always going to happen when you take 30 shots in a game especially in the last like if if you kind of like ignore like the last 10 minutes when arsenal really did get kind of desperate and like we're just taking shots from outside of the box all the time like i still thought that that was an overall good performance from the team or at least not necessarily a good performance but at least not a, a bad performance where i thought west ham was a bad performance I'm sorry, uh, Fulham was a uh, bad performance. There we go. Correcting myself. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And I've had this argument (laughs) online since West Ham um, because it it kind of extended to some of the other low block games that Arsenal have had, uh, particularly recently, where, you know, their argument was like, well, you're playing a low block, like you're going to get a bunch of chances. That's a choice that your opponent has made. I'm like, well, yeah, but you're – when you set up a low block, you're not setting out to give up like a league leading pace of XG. Like that's still a really significant chunk of creation that you're giving up. You, you set up a low block and you hope to like, you know, maybe you hold them to like one XG or 1.2 and you get, get the clean sheet because you're blocking so many shooting lanes and all that good stuff. But this is very different from, from, or that is very different from what really happened. So you cannot discount, in its entirety, the creation, just because it was against a low block, just because it was one nil down, it still happened. Um, there is, there is an outcome where that doesn't happen at all. Mm-hmm. Where Arsenal still struggle to even get into the box where they, where they don't get shots off because say like, you know, they can't get through the midfield, all that kind of good stuff like that, that can still happen. And, and those do drag your creation numbers down. So it's just, it's not all one way or all the other way, I think is what people need to realize. Yeah. And I think in my mind, what I imagine a good low block performance kind of looking at, especially if you're going to look at it from like a, you know, like the data perspective, it's like you imagine the the horseshoe of death. Like to me, like that is like the textbook example of a frustrated attacking team being forced into areas that are not dangerous be like resulting in you know crosses that are easily dealt with dealing with you know shots that are blocked from outside of the box and just like not being able to penetrate the low block at all like basically what happened against Fulham like I don't think that I think that was a lot more an example of a team kind of getting stuck in the horseshoe of death without ideas and how to break through like that was not West Ham at least in my mind at all and I think that gives us a, a good pivot to kind of just talk about like the attack in general right now 
it feels like this is the topic du jour and like i think there's concerns here but like on a scale of one to ten right now where are you with uh, the arsenal attack um, with it, a, let's let's say ten being good, zero being uh, we need to fire Mikel into the sun through a cannon. Okay, I think that I would probably, I'd probably have to come in like somewhere. It's not it's not dead in the middle, but it's also not dead. You know, complete panic or or completely poo pooing any sort of concern that people might have. I feel like I feel like I'm probably at like a six or a seven, like. Like I need, I need some of this stuff to start working out. If it does continue much longer, I think it starts to become a big worry. But kind of like what I've, what I have experienced over the past few years, and just kind of like what I know about, you know, things like probability models and things like that, does lead me to believe that yes, you know, it's this is this is the dip, and this is where where you buy, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think I'm going to say I'm at like a four and a half. So I I have, I think, real genuine concern about things. But I think I already kind of came in with a little bit of genuine concern. I I was I'm I'm writing in the process of writing this. So hopefully it'll be out sometime soon um, after this. So kind of looking at the difference between this year and last year. And there's a couple things that kind of surprised me. Well, one last year, Arsenal really overperformed, especially from open play with the amount of finishing they're able to do. Arsenal's open play XG was solid. I think it was about fifth last year. And mm-hmm. they were able to take the 55 expected goals and turn them into 67 actual goals. So it was it was certainly good. Um, there was you know good shot production, good average shot quality, but it wasn't elite level. So that that's a the nagging thing that's always kind of been there with Mikel like you know can he coach an attack and I think that went towards you know oh yeah I think he can right like we we started to look like a solid defensive you know our attacking team this year the numbers are actually slightly up with the the shots so up to 12 open play shots per match right now which is fourth in the league the average shot quality is down a bit so it went from about uh, 12% to uh, 10.7% and that has brought the average XG down a little bit. The thing that's a little bit surprising is that the overall league average is up. So you know that number last year probably would have been about fifth or sixth, and now it is eighth. So in the you know context of you know the difference between last year, it's not that bad. In the context of the league, it's a little bit worse. Mm-hmm. So it's it's certainly a concern. And then the one that absolutely makes it even worse is that Arsenal have created almost twenty six expected goals and have only converted them into 18 goals. So uh, a bit of a problem there, the opposite of what we were able to do. And I know one of the things, and I wanted to get your thoughts here, is should we think of last year as an aberration, or is this year the one that is the aberration, or is it somewhere in between? <laughs> well, I'm, it's, it's a good question, right? And I think, I think the good... The good, like, I'm not an actual data scientist, but, you know, that's not what I do for a living. But, like, a good data scientist would say, I think the the, the real honest answer is we don't know yet, right? Because mm-hmm. the sample size isn't big enough uh, to know if last season was normal or if this season was normal. We would need at least a third season and probably some more beyond that with, you know, all the same players and all that good stuff. But 
I think when you kind of like break things down on their component by their component parts, which for me is, is the attackers and, and their play. Um, and then just sort of look at like the historical sort of precedent that already existed in terms of stuff like, you know, XGL performance, all that good stuff. I mean, last season feels more like the one-off to me, I think is one-off, I think is something that Arteta said today, but, but not to this extent is what I would say. I think in the summertime, you know, it was pretty easy to look back on particularly Martinelli, but also probably to an extent Odegaard and a lesser extent Bukayo Saka and say, yeah, you know, this is this is going to be tough to redo um, and, and match um, just because like you, br- you break down, especially the finishing uh, Martinelli is is a good career finisher. And I think that. You know, people when they're not irritated with him would acknowledge that he strikes the ball well. Uh, mm-hmm. Same thing. Same thing with Odegaard, who is statistically speaking the best finisher for his career that Arsenal has. And like him, Martinelli, Saka, um, the only the only person in the in the side that hasn't seen like a, a drop off or or is is performing lower than what you consider kind of their career baseline is actually Eddie and Kedia. So, <laughs> but basically, and so I just, I just feel like, you know, I, I over the summer was expecting some sort of regression to the mean, but not to go from, you know, what was it? 10% above XG to 1% below. I was expecting more like, you know, 5% above XG, 4% above XG. And I, I still think that's very, very achievable with, with a decent second half of finishing. Exactly. And I think that's something that is a, a common misconception when people say regression to the mean. Like if you're overperforming, that means, oh, you're due to underperform. But that's not really what that means. It means that you will generally tend towards your uh, true baseline. And mm-hmm. I think that there's a, a reasonable expectation that Arsenal with a good I mean, with good players, you know, good players generally are better than the average and the XG is built off of the average. So it's not unconceivable to have better players perform better than the average right so like i think you're right right i don't think it was to the extent that arsenal were last year and i think that was one of the reasons that i kind of came in with lower expectations than i think some play some people did um i thought that there was a, a very good chance that arsenal would be a better team but they might actually have fewer goals scored and actually potentially fewer points, even though I think that they would be a better team. And I think that there's, I I don't know if I would necessarily say that Arsenal are a better team right now, but I I, I don't think it's too far off to say that um, this team at its best, like you kind of think about what we were before Liverpool match, like the, the run of games, what we did to Aston Villa, what we did to Brighton, what we did even against Liverpool, like holding that team to that little of output, I thought was incredibly good for this mm-hmm. team. And like I, I kind of look at that and I think, yeah, like this team is still very, very strong. This is another one that we were talking before we started. Um, and I, I have my own kind of expected points model. And there, there'll be a different, a uh, couple different ways that it's that you'll see these presented. But Arsenal are top on expected points right now. Uh, Manchester City are right behind and they have a a game in hand, so it's likely that they will go above Arsenal when they make up their game in hand against Brentford. But this team is still very good. And I know you um, caught yourself some pelters uh, posting how Arsenal have done for December. So do you want to enlighten Mm -hmm. us how Arsenal have looked so far in December? 
Yeah, I mean, so this is, you know, not to intentionally rival Scott's X points model. I just use understat because it's publicly available. <laughs> but I just I sorted their table from December 1st to I think it was to, through the second just so that I, I could even capture that that Liverpool plastering of Newcastle. And even even with that, I believe it was Arsenal first in XG difference, which would make them first in expected points. I think they were first in expected non non penalty goals as well, and then just second in uh, non penalty expected or sorry non penalty expected goals allowed. So it, it's one where the underlyings would say, "Hey, you know, this was one of, if not the best club." in terms of, you know, chance creation and chance creation prevention over the course of the month. And I just, I thought that was interesting because obviously the West Ham loss, you know, it feels a little fluky. Then you get the Fulham loss, which very much was not fluky. Which is funny though, that Arsenal still won on XG in that match though, right? (laughs) They did. Yeah. They, it was, it was a close one. Right. And, and that's like you said, though, some pelters get caught for that because, People, I think you start talking about like, like, I I just wanted to post that just because I knew in my heart of hearts that the underlying performance was not the same, Mm -hmm. was not in line with the actual number of points taken. And you, you just, you end up catching like strays left and right. Like, well, it doesn't win you any championships, you know? And I'm like, well, no, nobody like that. That's not the purpose of this discussion. We're just talking about you know, like repeatability of results, uh, you know, kind of like how we can use this to project out what might happen next, all that sort of good stuff. And I mean, if you, if you go out and have a Jan, I guess they only have what, one or two league games in January, but if you go out and have, a February, yeah, if you go out and have a February and a March, like you did December, just in terms of like the underlying, the expected performance, um, you would you would reasonably expect like you're going to get most of your points, if not all of them. I think that's that's why we talk about that. Yeah, and I know one of the things that I'm kind of like a, a broken record on, and I was kind of beating this drum at the start of the season when I thought that Arsenal weren't playing especially great. And when you perform poorly but win, you don't have to give the points back. But it is something that still causes worry in your mind that if you don't fix it, you're not likely to keep winning points. And the reverse of that is true. Like, even though you perform well, but you don't get the result, you don't get bonus points for that. But you do start to feel a little bit better that, all right, if we if we keep going this way going forward, things are going get to be- get better. It's the, you know, kind of the opposite, right? Like, you don't get a bonus point because you played Bell and you lost, but you do feel better that if we do this going forward, things are going to get better, or at least you would hope that they get better. So, like, it's it's a little bit of both. So yeah, like people are absolutely right. Results matter, especially um, in the situation where there's teams that are very closely bunched together, which I think Arsenal, Manchester City, and Liverpool all are. I think that these are three clearly um, superior teams than everybody else chasing. Like I know there's teams that are close by, like Aston Villa, Tottenham. Like they're they're close in the conversation, but. I think if you actually looked at the level of the teams that they are clearly a tier below, but yeah. the, the leverage of the matches that all of these teams are playing right now are huge, right? Like you saw Manchester city go through a period where they dropped points and they looked 
vulnerable for the first time in a long time. And that's what made it so Arsenal and Liverpool could overtake them and get them into these spots. And now Arsenal are going through a little bit of a slump. But I don't know, like if they start winning again, like they're right back in it. We're what potentially three points behind Manchester City and five points behind Liverpool. Like that's not that much. Like, I don't know, like that's that's two weeks that we could have a completely different view. Um, we have a head to head match against Liverpool coming in the very beginning of February. Like when that and things look drastically different for Arsenal on yeah. where things are. So it's like, yes, it sucks where things are right now. Um, I think there's there's genuine concern about things. Um, I know Billy Carper wrote or Billy Carpenter wrote a very good post kind of about where things kind of stand overall. Um, and I'm going to kind of like go on a similar kind of tangent with that one um, in a post that eventually will will come out. And I think there's some, yeah, sorry, hopefully there, there is some concerns about like with the ball progression and being able to do that. And I think the team is different than last year, but different doesn't necessarily mean worse. Like, I, I don't know, like there's a lot of, I think revisionism about Xhaka. And I think that's something that we talked a little bit previously about, but mm-hmm. it's like where not kind of ignoring the shots, do you think that there's a problem in the way that the team is going about building the attacks and trying to get the ball into dangerous locations? I mean, it, it feels it feels anecdotally like, I think just in general, like like you'd want the attack just to pick up pace a little bit. Sure. Uh, it's not I don't think I don't think that it's dramatic. You know, I've I've with the exception of Fulham, I don't think I've really seen like the horseshoe of death but I have seen it talked about. And, but at the end of the day, I think, I think this is just like, this is a symptom of having a first season where you are very much being treated like the big dogs by basically every opponent. Like, you know, when we talk about the, the, the lowest line facing the lowest line in the champions league, facing the lowest line in the premier league, the, I think a very common retort as well, Manchester city, Manchester City faced a low line and they still create a ton of chances. And I, I think that, that, that it's, that's a discussion that kind of goes in a couple of ways that they, uh, but at the end of the day, I think one of the big assets they have is just, they have been doing this a really long time. They're very used to it. And, and I think that just, I think sometimes I feel like we discount the ability or, or the, the sort of like time needed to just like figure some stuff out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've we've seen Arsenal change and evolve and struggle against one particular kind of opponent for a very long period of time, and then and then they figure some stuff out and they they do so much better. Like, and I I just part of me is like I just think that I think that this is still something that's being figured out. But in general, I I personally I just you definitely get the impression at times like like maybe it is a little too hand handbraked if that's a word and <laughs> yeah. and you know and the it's not it's not difficult to understand kind of the philosophical reason for that but you know maybe throw some more caution to the wind when you're not one nil down yeah and, and i i like to think in the terms of trade-offs and because i think that is kind of what you have to do um in the sense of if you want to get more attack, that generally means you have to commit more players forward or you have to play in riskier locations that if you lose the ball, you are going to be more open for other teams to be able to get chances against you. 
like there isn't a perfect way of playing that kind of gives you both and like you kind of have to think about it in the way of like all right what am i willing to trade off in certain situations and i don't know if necessarily that mikel has the balance perfectly right i would be more willing to say i think our attack is really strong and i want to try to maximize that especially given some of the players that we have back in defense like i I feel really good to put those guys in the the high wire kind of you know matches like i I really like you know gabrielle saliba and white as the guys that are generally furthest back um, especially when they're shielded by ben white i think that is a a team that can withstand a few more you know say counterattacks given up Um, Mm -hmm. but also like you know you've seen one of the, the problems that arsenal have had this year is that we have hurt ourselves and like i don't know maybe if you play too front-footed like maybe there's more of those kinds of things so maybe mikel isn't wrong in those situations like is the balance right like do you think we're we're in the wrong spot right now it's it's so hard it's so hard to really <laughs> it's so hard to really know like i just i think that's kind of a that's kind of a weakness of this sort of like cottage industry of analysis and reaction is that uh you know there's there's the really popular and kind of dumb meme that's like sit sit back and observe not everything deserves a reaction and you know sometimes sometimes you feel like i feel i would feel more secure knowing that we're not going overboard with like a lot of changes and then there are other times where i'm like got it you know but right now it feels like we should have changed something sooner it's just it's i don't know i'm kind of stuck (laughs) stuck halfway between yeah, I think. Well, I mean, I, I think there's certain things that I wish that we might be more flexible. I think the the Kivior performance against Fulham was one that's like that felt like a little bit like kind of like uh, throwing Rob Holding in there and saying, "Oh, play like uh, William Saliba on a high line and being able to do that." And you're like, mate, no, yeah. he, he he is not that type of player. And I think that trying to put Kivior into the Zinchenko role is incredibly tough and almost unfair, like for him, like. Zinchenko comes in for criticism and some of it I think is fair some of it I think is overblown but I think everybody would agree that he plays a very special unique style that there's not a lot of players that are capable of doing that people might be frustrated with him but I think even the people that are critical of him can recognize that what he does is special and hard and not many people do it. And there's a reason why not many people do it is because it's freaking hard. And I think Kivior has been put in a hard spot because he's a good player, I think. Um, And I think that he has potentially maybe even the tools to do some of the things that Zinchenko does. But I think that's a lot to be asked to have a player who hasn't had like any side of like match fitness to get to come in and take that role. So I think those are the kind of things that I would be more pointed at than rather than, you know, more like the, the general, I guess, a uh, tactical level right now. Yeah. And if, you know, not to harp too much on, on it, but you know, I felt similarly, for example, when we were looking at Sambi Lakanga for an extended period of time and getting put out there and basically say, Hey, play like Thomas. Yeah. Park. <laughs> Yeah, so, one of the at that time, like the guy that like played with no like kind of uh, help behind him, right, to be able to kind of like be put on an island often. Yeah, and and I think that's just another a good example of what you're talking about. So it's you kind of feel like it's you know you've got the you've got the trust in the in the system, and and you know guy B can play like guy A, and that's dialed up to ninety percent or ninety five percent. And I you know like last season was a good learning that maybe 
dial that down to like 70% and you might end up making some valuable <laughs> tweaks. I think that that did end up happening down the stretch as well when party was out and Arteta basically moved more to like a double pivot uh, toward the end of the season. And, you know, lo and behold, the results get better. So I think, I think there's going to be a little bit of both, right? Like it's not, he's, he's not going to like suddenly come out and he's going to be playing like a three, four, two, one. And, you know, something like that. But, but I think well, like, might said, be right. If only down to three defenders, I think we, you know, <laughs> we might have to see something like that. Well, I mean, don't discount our, our backup, backup left back Kai Havertz. Um, he's got experience playing there for Germany, so he can do it and, you know, we'll just figure it out. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's always Cedric. I mean, he's the one that, you know, will always come in and save the season. He'll get a statue <laughs> built Cedric. for him. <laughs> I love Cedric. Unless he's unless he's sold to Villarreal, then we do not have him anymore. But let's be honest, it's not happening. All right, you got any final thoughts on the attack? I, to me, I think it feels like we're kind of in that same spot of like, yeah, like there's concerns. It sucks. It's not as good as it was last yeah. year, but it's also perhaps not as bad as for people kind of think. Like it's it's kind of stuck in a, a messy middle, and it's you know. I, yeah. One, I, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to like dig into this really deep, but one, cause this is very much like anecdotal. This is psychological, but I think that one thing that I've seen discounted pretty consistently is yeah. All the attackers have lost form at the same time. Sure. You know, and basically using that to be a stick to beat Arteta with. But one thing I will say, and I, I think that that argument misses is that especially in such like a low opportunity sport like football when things are going things are ticking things are vibing like guys are having fun it is so much easier to to like take a great shot it's so much like like one one person that for me was like the epitome of this when he played for arsenal was was nicolas pepe when arsenal would get up one or two nil i feel like that was when this this dude was just having fun he was playing so well but when, like, if Arsenal were ever out of ideas, like, Pepe was just totally useless. He was just dribbling into brick walls over and over again. But then when he would, like, even just more in, like, low-stakes games, he would just come out and he would play so well. And I think that there's something, there's something like, to dig into there where I think that, you know, getting getting a weird bounce off the crossbar and it goes in, it hits Emmy Martinez in the head, things like that, that just happen and it makes you feel good and you can smile about it um it's been a while it's been it's been at least a couple games since arsenal have had anything like that and i mean similarly to like you know rasmus hoyland going a thousand minutes without scoring mikhailo mudrick going so long without scoring and now he's got one and i feel like the the goals are coming easier for him i think Mm -hmm. i think it's just something that it's so intangible but um somebody needs to get like a little bit of a fluky goal and i think that that's going to raise heads a little bit too. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, I don't know how much you play golf or anything like that, but I I don't play as much as I would like, and I am not a good golfer, but like you step up to a tee and you got like water that you have to carry. Like it's that uh, you, you grip the club a little bit too hard and you over swing a little bit too much. You over try. And that's what tends to, to leave you in the water, right? If it rather, if it's a, you know, it's a nice, easy, big fairway, you got no problems. All right. Now you could just take a nice, easy, relaxed swing. And that's when, 
then you hit it pure and it goes right down the middle. Um, I think there is certainly something like that. When you start pressing too much, um, you start, you know, overdoing things, trying almost too hard um, yeah. is some of the things that, yeah, kind of leads you in these situations. Like it's hard to put uh, numbers on those kinds of things. And I know we like to do that here, but I think it is absolutely a real thing, even if you can't necessarily measure it. Well, and yeah, you can, you can like, I think that there are very tangible examples of this happening. Like uh, I, I think the best one, and I'm not even bringing this up to like make fun of them, but like every attacker who's joined Chelsea in the past five years or so has, has gotten markedly worse at shooting when they've gone there. And I think that's just like, there's, there's not something in the water in that part of London. It's just, it's an environment thing. Nobody, you know, like we watched Chelsea in the preseason. I think some people were really scared of them because they looked so fluid and the attack like looked like a lot of fun and Jackson was finishing off moves. And now here he is one of the worst statistical finishers in the premier league. Now that the, the pressure has gotten dialed up a little bit. So it's just, I think it's something that people don't account for at all. And maybe you should. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's also, that I've always thought about too, is that I don't think that there's necessarily, I don't think that these athletes are necessarily like mentally weak. Cause I don't think you necessarily can be that and make it to the top. I think that the way that players are weeded out, like it's going to, take those players that can't handle it out of the game already. Right. Like a lot of these players, you know, come up like, yeah, some of them come up through like the big academies and like doing those kinds of things. But, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, went from, you know, smaller, you know, just from smaller clubs to bigger clubs. And like, they still have those same kind of pressures and like, you know, the being able to do it, like, yeah, maybe not be to the exact level, but I think that there's, if, if somebody is absolutely mentally weak and can't handle it, I think that they probably will have been wet wed weeded out of the game already so i think mm-hmm. that most of these players are already to that level and i think there's just a a little bits of you know kind of variance even inside of you know your mental state of being able to handle things yeah exactly all right should we switch gears and talk about everybody's favorite topic in january some transfers <laughs> there, there hasn't been any transfers yet and it's the window's been open for uh going on five days now are you ready to fire um edu and all of the scouts and transfer committee and all of those kinds of things absolute absolute waste men these guys you what's stopping you from arranging transfers in november and december so that you can ready bring- to submit and register right as the you know the calendar turns on january 1st to 1201 right i want to see my technical director i want i want him to be lined up at the door at 11 59 like he's there for like a midnight premiere of harry potter or something this is ridiculous I think in reality, there's been, it's five days. I think there's been three or four deals that have happened so far, like worldwide. And a lot of those are even from leagues that have been out of season for a while. So yeah, Spurs got uh, two fullbacks back on uh, from loan. Like they got two loans canceled. So yeah, they got two incomings done, but I don't think those are incomings they wanted to get done. Well, I mean, if we're going to count those, then I think uh, Arsenal closing in on Marquinhos. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it's a big deal. They brought back Moro Bandera from his loan. So that's another one. But yeah, it's it's been, you know, it's I I think people people are maybe starting to learn that these these moves are not going to happen January 1st, especially especially given where Arsenal are financially. Mm -hmm. There's just there's a lot of moving parts that you know, they're, they're domino effects. And, and I think that um, that's something that we're really going to have to keep in mind this uh, month in particular, and hopefully, hopefully not too much in future seasons. Once we start throwing a little bit of champions league revenue into the, 
into the FFP equation. Yeah. So I think this leaves us to a good spot. So like, what are kind of the, the expectations that I think you would start with for the window? Like all right, something that you kind of feel with 50% probability is going to happen like right now, but where, where do you kind of feel you're at there? Well, I mean, I think, I think that the thing that I most expect to happen is I think Arsenal come out of this with, with a depth piece defensively, but I, you know, I think, it, I think it might end up being more comparable to like what Manchester United did. Speaking of Spurs, taking Regulon on on loan, mm-hmm. like that that caliber of player, you could Would you also take Regulon on loan if that was offered. I, I haven't seen any rumors about it, but I was just curious. I don't know. He was a player that I, I I vaguely liked. I liked him better than Tierney, so <clears throat> take that of what you will. And I don't, I didn't follow him super closely at United, but I do recall him having a couple moments where like the United fans liked him. So, um, but I, you know, I don't think, I, I don't think I would, I'd probably go out of my way to not help Spurs, <laughs> which taking him on loan essentially would be, cause it'd be getting a, you know, a dissenting voice out of their dressing room. So yeah, it's. I don't know. I think I just I feel like that's probably the the first thing that's that's going to happen or the thing that I would consider to be most likely. It just it seems like it seems like we've kind of got this like back and forth between in the know type of accounts, uh, ITKs on Twitter and and like lesser reporters for who are like doing like I don't even know some of the names of the publications like football 365 reporter with 40,000 followers on Twitter. And he's saying, oh, Arsenal are going to go. Uh, they're going to go off and get this midfielder from such and such, or or they're going to try for Zubamendi or something like that. And then, and then like a day later you get Ornstein and he's like, I'm not expecting anything. There's, you know, there's nothing big going on right now. Ivan Tony isn't expected to leave. Like, so I think, I think it might be quieter than people expect. Arteta did address that a little bit today where he said, you know, it's a possibility that, that there is no business that gets done. So, but I think that, I think that what, what could happen is that there's something there, there's an, there's an outgoing, um, mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, we're not completely sure is going to happen right now. Like there were certain guys last summer we knew were not ending the summer at Arsenal. And I, I think that with, with some of these guys, like, you know, Eddie and Kedia is probably the best example, but Reese Nelson is, is being touted out there as somebody that has interest too. And, I think that you may just see the decision on whether or not to take those deals just be tied directly to what Arsenal could do as a result. Yeah, and there's not there's not like a place that the FFP equation is publicized, so I can't tell you for sure. Like if if they sold Eddie for twenty million, then they could spend eighty. Like I don't know that exact equation. I don't think anybody does with a hundred percent accuracy, but. But I, I think that, you know, if, for with Eddie being the example again, like I don't think they would sell him without having an equivalent move lined up first. Yeah, and I think that that is right. And I think that is the the part of the problem that's the, the complication is that like the actual accounts, even for like they're generally a year behind, like those just have not come out for Arsenal. So like we don't even like I think the, the latest books that we have for Arsenal was the 21-22 season. So we have not seen the books for 22-23 for how things overall look. 
So I think we just kind of have to take it a little bit on faith that, you know, Arsenal's uh, transfer spending is probably limited. Um, I believe that because, you know, all the reporting on, you know, David Raya's move is one that we basically borrowed from next summer's kind of transfer allocation to be able to bring that move to now where it's Mm -hmm. uh, a loan but it's kind of a loan in name only like that's basically a you know a a transfer that's been done it just can't be officially done until next summer um and that that is probably because of the ffp rules i don't think we sold the players that we expected to be able to sell in the summer um you know i think we would have liked to have sold tierney i think we would have liked to have maybe sold Tavares. i think we would have you know liked to have had some of these other players that were kind of like on the cusp you know be able to go out and that would have funded a little bit more business so I think that is kind of interesting. And I think that kind of leaves me in the like about 50-50 range for like a player coming in. Um, I think it is right that it is probably a defender that is the most likely. Um, I think I've been pretty consistent that I think that that's the, the move that protects the floor of the team the most. Um, I think that if we were looking to like what would raise the ceiling of the team, I think it would be potentially a wide attacker would be the one that I think moved the needle the most. Um, I think that's the the weakest um, upper level one. And the one that like, especially when you think about how a game flows, you, you think, all right, all right, I, I, my, my main wide or one of my wide players goes all out for 65 minutes. And then we bring these fresh legs in to go against a, a tired fullback and like, see if we can do it. Like that's when it's a lot easier to have like a timeshare in rather than like a defender. Like you don't, you know, yeah, you'll see like a Zinchenko go off at like 70 minutes or like those kinds of things, but you generally aren't uh, changing out your center backs or you're changing out your, your fullbacks with massive regularity to change a game, to be able to do things like you might do it to shore up a game. And I think right. we have a player to do that on both sides, um, you know, in Kivior and Tomiyasu when they're healthy and available and or not on international duty. So, but I think right now, like kind of looking at, I, I looked at the depth chart the other day and it's kind of ugly um, in defense. Thankfully, um, I think um, Arteta had, positive news on Zinchenko um, for how bad his calf injury is. And that probably makes things look less bad, but it's still pretty barren back there, especially with Tommy in Asia uh, representing his country. I think he's leaving today to go um, meet up with the the Japanese national team. So yeah, I think 50, 50 is about right. So let's, let's kind of talk now about the players that might leave. Mm-hmm. I know one of the ones that I think is most popular is Eddie and Kedia. Would you be comfortable if he was sold? And what? And then I think the the bigger question, the one that I think is most interesting, is what is an actual reasonable fee for Eddie and Kedia? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting topic because I think that everybody and their mother feels like Arsenal could probably you know kind of bear the the storm until summer by selling in Kedia and just using Havertz and Trossard at mm-hmm. the, at the nine sort of as your, as your depth. But I don't think, I just don't, I just don't get the impression at all that Mikel Arteta feels that way. You know, he's been like, incredibly reluctant, right. To do anybody besides Eddie and Kedia as like the first option up. Like we haven't seen, I think since the uh, community shield, right. To really see Kai Havertz start as the nine, right. I don't think there's been yeah. moments, but that's it. Like even in the regular season matchup against against Manchester City, Kai was playing kind of more like he came on late, but he was playing 
I think more more like a second striker kind of you know his usual spot when he set up Martinelli for that winning goal. And it's it's yeah, I just I get I get the impression that Arteta does not think that he's doing those players justice by playing them at striker. Trossard, you know, I think Trossard gets talked up a lot as having played really well at striker, but I think that there are a couple of significant considerations when you compare him to Gabriel Jesus. I think one, he's just, he's just not the same kind of box presence, although he can dribble, he can carry, he can bring other players into play. He can, he can create chances. He, he's a great finisher, but I just don't know if he, if he's got like the same ability to get on the end of things, you know, which is ironic because I think that's one of the things people are frustrated with Jesus right now. And then at Havertz, I just feel like maybe there's some some degree of Arteta saying, "No, we need him in the midfield, um, so we can't we can't make him a striker." Because I I think when you when you talk about using those two guys up front, like when you take one of them out of the eight role or, or the kind of the running for that eight, suddenly the depth is kind of tricky there. Yeah, Unless absolutely. you can use ESR or Fabio, which you know is another discussion, but. Um, so I, in my, my opinion, like, I think, I think Arteta considers Eddie to sort of be like the immovable, uh, first backup number nine. Um, and, and I think that, I think that their thinking here is that the only way that they would agree to sell him is if they knew they had another striker coming back in. But what, what's, what's difficult about this is that while everybody seems to believe that it would be very easy to upgrade on Enkedia and, and like, don't get me wrong, it would be easier than upgrading on a lot of other players that Arsenal have. The question is, do you want to do that right now? And why that is the question is because, let's just think through this, like, let's break this down this hypothetical. Let's say that Arsenal sell Enkedia and they buy Dominic Solanke. So obviously that's that's a good player. Uh, he's having a great season, but he's, you know, he's probably going to cost like 50 million pounds or something like that. So you bring him in. And I it mean, might even be a, a further premium to pry him away from Bournemouth at yeah. January, right? That's that's always the thing that complicates January moves is that you can't always get players that are key players for the teams that are selling them. It's usually players that are on the outs with their team. Um, and if not, it comes with a massive premium. Yeah, and, and the way the way Bournemouth uh, are playing right now, like you'd have to wonder if their ownership might be sitting back and saying, Gosh, you know, I kind of want to put in a run at Europe at the, the way things are right now. They're only six points back of seventh. Like they're not, and they're, I think they're like the second or third rated team over the past month. So yeah, that just adds more to the, to the premium. But so you, 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 let's just say Arsenal have, have done this and it's, you know, 50 or 60 million or something like that. Well, so then you go into the summer with Jesus and Solanke. Solanke is likely has been your number two striker. And and the goal from this was for for as long as we can remember is to like bring in the marquee striker for the summer, right? Whether that's your Osaman mm-hmm. or whether that's like I don't know Evan Ferguson or some some someone else. So how does that work now? I think that the I think that the the popular answer is well, just turn Gabriel Jesus into a winger. But I don't think that works. I don't think that works at all. Um, I think I think whatever happens after the summer, Gabriel Jesus has to be getting minutes as both a number nine and a winger, and and just making him like the backup winger uh, just doesn't work. I think he would either have to take a spot, which would be Martinelli at this point, or remain like in the mix because you can't 
I'm sorry, people think some people seem to think this kind of thing is possible. But hypothetically, Gabriel Jesus, Dominic Solanke, and let's just say Osaman, just because I can't think of anyone else, like they're not sharing all those minutes uh, in one position. It's just not going to happen. So it just it just becomes really messy, and it, and it might be better to wait if you're not making a significant upgrade. Um, somebody who can push Jesus like a serious competition for minutes, or even just come in and be the starter um, while Jesus is relegated to sort of that backup role. So I don't know that I see Arsenal doing that. The other thing is right now he's been linked to Crystal Palace. Mm-hmm. I think that's arguably arguably the worst Premier League club to have your player linked to. People don't really gauge the extent of Crystal Palace's spending appropriately. I can't tell you how many people have said, "Oh, they can just they'll just spend thirty million on Enkedia. Like that'd be fine." You're like, "Well, okay, yeah, maybe you take that money, but do you know how many times they've spent thirty million pounds on one player in their existence once?" Please tell us. Oh, wow, yeah. It's it's Christian Benteke. Or I probably it's okay. It's all right. It's close enough. I Americanized it. Anyway, uh, he is an he is an MLS player now. So, but but I think what's what's even more relevant. How many players do you think they've spent more than twenty million on in like the past handful of years, two or three years? I'm about to be surprised. I think is only one. Is Mark Mark <laughs> oh. uh, Mark Gahey. Was so, yeah, the, that's, that's, that brings them to two total, right? So they got yeah, Benteke and Gehi that are the only two players that they've, they've spent more than $20 million on, right? Well, they've, I mean, there's like Mamadou Sacco, um, Cheikh Ducore, or sorry, so, so Gehi was the number one, 23.3 okay. million euros. So you're topping out at like right around 20 million pounds. Ducore yep. was basically around the same. So, but that's, that's like right at 20. So, and now your expectation is that, uh, they're gonna come in in January 2024, and they're gonna they're gonna like not only spend that but top that on Eddie and Kedia, while also making him one of their highest paid players. I just it's it's tough for me to 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 really make that math math. At least it's hard to say that it's going to be much above that, right? Like, so if you come in with an expectation that Eddie and Kedia is worth 40 million pounds, that's pretty unreasonable. Um, like I, I, I think it's just blatantly, like blatantly. I think that's just unreasonable. I think I would be, I think realistically, um, and I haven't, you know, maybe this is something that I need to, to do is kind of like pull the comps of like, you know, players that, are similar to Eddie and Kedia and like what they have actually gone for because he's gotten to the age where he is now no longer, I think a young promising prospect. Like he kind of like is what he is, but I think there is also the benefit of like, he has been trusted by Arsenal this year. And like, I think that is something that people could potentially, you know, look onto. And now he now has several thousand of premier league minutes of like what he's been able to do. And I think, the kind of the expectations for him should kind of solidify as a guy that, you know, belongs in the premier league. You don't have to project to be able to see him being able to, to work there, you know, but it's still like where the player, the teams that are going to be lining up for him are the crystal palaces are those levels of teams. And like you just pointed out, like they just don't spend huge, massive sums. Like this isn't, Manchester United that's coming in um, and like, you know, maybe they will be dumb and like offer like, you know, a ton of money for him. And like, then you just take it, but like, there's no links there. No. 
or even even like I mean you could you could go a little higher up like West Ham or um or another good one would be Everton but those are not the clubs that are oh, Everton good. like have no money right like they are in FFP jail like they just Probably took as a result <laughs> of spending too much yes exactly <laughs> so I think I just it's hard for me to see that one happening I think I think if this was summer, I think that they would probably take, you know, twenty five million pounds for him. I th- I think that they would probably do that deal. They they sold Balogun for twenty six million plus add ons that maybe maybe end up netting you like thirty five million total for him. And I think I think that you'd probably take that twenty five million because you would also have the entire summer to figure out what to do at striker. But it's just. Like the quality of strikers that are moving in January is just not, it's just not that high. Like you can, you can link every player under the sun to Arsenal, but I mean, just look at Ivan Tony. Brentford want 100 million pounds for him. That's the reporting. Why? Well, because they're in the middle of their season. Like they, they're trying, they're trying to accomplish things. No, they're not going to win the Premier League. Like, no, they're probably not going to make Europe. But Brentford still care. Like, what kind of season Brentford has? They care if they're tenth or if they're fifteenth. They don't just care about staying up. So it's it's difficult to sit there and be like, well, you know, you're not going to win such and such, so you might as well just sell. Like, I don't think the, the small clubs think like that. I think that's just fans who think like that. Yeah, and they're also. 19 points, so four points above Luton. So, like, yeah, they're probably a better club than Luton. And, like, you would expect them to have, you know, be relatively safe going forward. But, like, four points is two matches again, right? Like, that is not a lot of comfort to be able to to kind of see your way through it and be willing to, you know, give up, you know, a goal score. And they are a team that have been heavily hit by injury they're losing both of their you're losing key players to AFCON. So yeah, I, I don't see Brentford. Um, I think they've definitely put out a position that is very strong and like, it's basically, you have to come, you know, take it from me to be able to kind of make it work. Um, and yeah, they'll, they'll probably go like to them. Like the, the worst case is they go into the summer with Tony one year left on his contract. And like, that's still a sellable asset. You know, maybe you don't get the the same you know peak level, but I think you still would be able to get plenty for him. You know, to make it so Brentford is fine and happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's let's switch to to talking a little bit about Reese Nelson because I think this is a an interesting topic here. So Arsenal re-signed him in the summer, and I think when we both kind of did the you know the our our decision kind of uh, on should they go, should they stay in the beginning, we both were on the, I think it was time for Reese to go side, but the club decided to keep him and they haven't used him. Like, is there something weird going on here? Like, I don't know. Like, is it, do you have second thoughts on Reese Nelson? Like, or have you changed your opinions on him at all? Like I find him uh, an interesting player. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely like a situation where when he was signed, I think the kind of the, the consensus opinion was, well, you know, they don't really use him enough to really re-sign him. So if they re-sign him, it better be like a signal that he's going to get more run. And and I think that, you know, that was the hope. Now kind of looking back on it after a half of a season and what, like 190 minutes in the Premier League. No I starts. Think, yeah, no starts, which that, that doesn't surprise me. But the, no, but the minutes are just so low. And it just, I, th- I feel like, 
I feel like he was signed because now knowing what we know about FFP and such, I just think he was signed out of basically like, well, it's either this or spend two or three times as much to get another suitable, you know, rotation option in. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't know if people like to hear that about, about the players, but uh, I think that, you know, I think it was a similar story with Enkedia when he was re-signed too. It would have been m- massively more expensive despite the fact that they gave him 100K a week. But, I mean, you know, it's it's tough because I when he, when he gets uh, playing time, I enjoy it. I'm happy that he's getting it. At the same time, I still, I still like hesitate to ever be like full blown like yes start him on you know start him against Liverpool next week yeah or this weekend so I don't know it's just it's kind of a sticky situation if they are able to sell him and get a fee on it I mean that's that's just a net win so we'll take that yeah and and I don't I'm I had this thought the other day and it's like, I just don't know if there really is a big fee out there. I think if, if anything, it's kind of like a, a nominal fee because I kind of look at the situation and like clubs could have had him basically for free six months ago. Yeah. Like it actually wouldn't have been free free because I think he would have come with a tribunal, especially if it was um, a team in England, but like generally that probably would have been like what, probably like 5 million, like, pounds type of thing like would be the tribunal for you like i think that's maybe it's even less than that i'd have to, to go back and double check like what the the you know the standard is for the tribunals but they're usually fairly low yeah and like no club came and beat out arsenal with like an offer that like was better for him i i generally kind of think that that probably means that Reese Nelson took the most money or at least something close to the most money at Arsenal to be able to stay here. So it's like, I don't think that he turned down more money elsewhere or at least massively more money elsewhere to stay at Arsenal. I think so. Like that one is kind of like, so if he is going to move, it's going to be six months into a relatively long-term contract for him where he's well-paid. So like if somebody comes in like, is somebody going to come in and match the wages that he has right here and pay Arsenal a fee on top of it? Like when they decided not to do it six months ago, like has there been something that Reese Nelson has done in the six months that would induce somebody to want to make that move? And I just don't think there is, right? I think the, that Arsenal are kind of like doing the opposite of what they're doing with Enkedia. Like I think Enkedia's value has probably gone up because they've been they've shown a willingness to use him and like show trust in him. And I think Reese kind of is on the opposite of that. Like Arteta, you know, kind of talks up him and like he, when he actually does play, I think he has been impressive, but like the manager's kind of a take on where he is, is pretty clear when he doesn't get the minutes, even when like there's chances that he could have played. Yeah. And I, I I mean, I think, I think I'm closer to agreeing with, Arteta's point of view uh, than I am to yours in terms of like how he's played when he has come on the season. I think, I think he's had times where he's looked lively and I think there's been times where honestly, I didn't know what he was doing. So <laughs> I, and maybe, maybe that's what Arteta sees when he watches him in training. Just like, I mean, could, because this is the premier league, you know, this is, this is the club that can't afford to lose a single game. Right. So how can we, how can we uh, use that player? I don't know. It's just, it's, it's tough. It's, it's a, it's a tough, it's a, it's like a, a tough subject in general. Just the, the subject of being like a squad player 
at a Absolutely. club like Arsenal. Like I think people just in general are kind of a little bit, I don't know, just unrealistic in, in expectations. Like I, I'm not, I'm not looking at Tottenham and seeing Brian Heal starting over Richarlison or, or Son or, uh, you know, anyone of significance, Brennan Johnson, um, just because that's not really what he's there for. I think yep. Reese is more of a heel than he is uh, than he is a Richarlison. That's a, a good way to put it. Um, Arsenal just don't have any, you know, uh, Richarlisons in their team right now, right? I guess uh, maybe in Kedia would be thinking that way, but it's a, a spot where yeah, it feels like we're a touch short. But yeah, uh, so hopefully we dashed everybody's expectations on the the transfer window. That's what I do. Yeah, but hopefully. We'll, we'll still follow any rumors that come up. Um, I know I'm in the, the process of looking at our our new Turkish uh, fullback that we're going to know all about. I pulled data um, from Turkey. So uh, we'll have a, a scouting, a stats scouting on Ferdy. I don't know how to say his uh, last I'm name. I'm guessing uh, Kadioglu, but we'll see. Kadioglu. That's, that, that, that makes sense. Kadioglu. Um, and I think, Adam, you, you've got some stuff looking at fullbacks too, right? Coming up. Working on some fullbacks, yeah, and we'll have a look into how Arsenal's fullbacks have done, and also just kind of who out there has been has been a good performer. And and as always, as as these like real links come up um, from legitimate people, uh, because I and Scott both have lives and day jobs, and it's hard to <laughs> to do full film studies on players just out of nowhere. Um, we'll have we'll have like more in depth stuff on on all those real links too. Yes, yeah, so hopefully there'll be some some real links to to get us going, but we'll we'll kind of satiate ourselves with some some fake links that I think we got going for us now. Yeah, so we'll we'll come to you again uh, next week. Hopefully, we'll have some more transfer thing to talk about, and hopefully, we'll be able to have a a win against Liverpool in the FA Cup. I think the worst result might be the draw because the this team looks like they need to avoid a replay and be able to, to get in here too. Yeah, they need a warm. They need that warm weather camp to rest everybody up and and get ready for the the second half of the year. Agreed. All right, Adam. Thanks. It's uh, it was good talking to you. It's been too long since we got one together, so I'm glad we were able to to get this. So thank you so much for for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. I always love to talk Arsenal, even when things are going badly. It's still fun. Yep. And if you enjoyed the episode and you'd like to support the podcast, you can uh, rate, review, do all those fun things. Um, You probably already did because you made it to the end. And for that, we love you. And we will talk to you on the next one. Cheers, y'all.